Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Jess Bodie. And I'm Claire Maldarelli. So, on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, social distancing, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. And this week, we are celebrating Earth Day. Earth Day! Day of the Earth. Uh, because it's today, the 22nd, Earth Day. And unlike most Earth Days of recent past, many of us are spending it inside. Though I hope you can go for a socially distant walk at some point today to appreciate the planet around you. But even if you can't, we have some facts to help you think about this cool, weird, wonderful planet we're on. So hopefully that is the next best thing. Claire, why don't you start with uh, your teas? Yes, I would love to. So I would like to talk about a region in Death Valley, California, where 700-pound boulders seem to mysteriously move on their own. What? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued. That's like often how I feel when I just like start my day <laughs> stuck at home. I'm like, it is I, the 700-pound oh, boulder. slowly (laughs) moving out of bed but you know if the boulders can do it so can we so i'm excited (laughs) to hear more about them i love that jess what's your tease yeah i want to talk about my love for the field of herpetology and just some of the weirdest amphibians ever herps 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 
Love it. Hell yeah. We love her. And my tease, I am also talking about an esoteric field of science that I care deeply about, uh, which is mycology. And I'm going to talk about a frightfully large mushroom. Oh. Just really astonishingly, disconcertingly large. Uh, Claire, Hmm. why don't you start with your boulders? Like (laughs) I said, that's like a a motivational story I need to hear today. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. This makes me sound like I like love boulders. I mean, you love mushrooms. (laughs) 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 But I don't have like, I, I don't have like a dying love affair for boulders. But this story begins in Death Valley. And if you've never been there, Death Valley is a very weird place. It's located on the eastern border of California and within the Mojave Desert. So it's this kind of like desert valley region within this huge uh, desert itself. And it's incredibly remote and no one really lives there. And that's for good reason. The weather is scorching. And in terms of the name of Death Valley, I found this cool, interesting anecdote that has nothing to do with boulders, but whatever. It's my segment. So I was <laughs> promised a boulders only fact. <laughs> uh, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. As the story goes, the area got its forbidding name when a group of pioneers found themselves lost in the middle of the valley during the 1849 gold rush. And when they were finally rescued, one of the men turned around and said, so long, Death Valley. <laughs> oh, dramatic. Wow. Yeah. Very, so, what a sign off. It's like, mm-hmm. sucks to suck, desert. Totally. See I feel never. like, yeah, that's going to be us like when we finally leave our apartments. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, but unsurprisingly, there's actually a lot of mystery involved in this weird death-like region. But in my opinion, there's no... Greater mystery than the case of the sailing stones. So, yes, yes, (laughs) I just felt like that needed that. It it needed the drama. It needed (laughs) the sort of like you know, I don't know, scary movie background. Needed the vibes. Yeah, totally. So uh, uh, the story takes us to this region of Death Valley. Now, Death Valley itself is about three miles wide or three miles long and one mile wide. So it's actually like a pretty big space. Um, All of Death Valley is pretty big and even the Mojave Desert is like a a big region of California. But we're kind of narrowly focusing in on a region called Racetrack Playa. Oh, Uh, Yes, yes, yes. So the area is a dry, almost flat as a pancake lake bed with barely any vegetation or life. But strangely, streaked across this desolate ground are these distinct indentations of rocks. And it almost looks like they're being dragged across the ground within the rock setting. Um, So if you can imagine maybe a piece of rock or just anything that's kind of on sand being dragged across sand and it sort of leaves this indentation of where it came from or even dragged across like mud or something like that. So that's what it looks like. It's these like big streaks of indentation on this super dry rock bed and at like the a end zen of- garden yes exactly like that and at the end of these streaks are these giant boulders 
And oh my gosh. Yeah. All I have in my mind right now is the, is the SpongeBob episode where they ride around on the rocks. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> and there's streaks across all of this region of Death Valley racetrack playa. Now, some of them are huge boulders up to 700 pounds, and some of them are much smaller, like little teeny pebbles, so to speak. And some of them are these streaked. Some of them are six to 18 inches long, while others are just go on for hundreds and hundreds of feet. So long, long streaks, mini streaks. And then strangely, some of them kind of like change direction. So it'll be going in these eerily, perfectly straight lines. And then all of a sudden, it will abruptly turn 90 degrees and go in that other direction. So- People have seen this and they call them sailing stones and they're known in this region as racetrack playa, but researchers have never been able to figure out what actually causes these rocks to move. Now, no one lives there, so they know that it's not animals and they know it's not people that are moving these. If it were people, that would be really weird. (laughs) I guess you can't put it past people these days. (laughs) We have a lot of free time on our hands, but... um, (laughs) Say, you know, it's it's not people. Um, so there's been a number of theories that these researchers who are studying this area, racetrack playa, have proposed. One of them was even, and they, they honestly range from like the super extreme to obviously aliens to more plausible explanations. So for the sake of our science show, I will only give you plausible explanations. Um, <laughs> one of them you, was... You're welcome. (laughs) So one of them was that this is like magnetism. So uh, a group of researchers had once proposed that maybe there's some sort of local magnetic effect going on where the rocks have some types of metals or in them that allow them to sort of move with the ground. But when they actually sampled the rocks, they weren't able to find any of these magnetic metals like iron that would allow them to move in this way. So the other explanation that researchers have kind of come down on is that it's some kind of extreme weather event, like um, just this crazy weather that kind of moves them and then it leaves the area like almost like a storm Mm. or something like that. But these kinds of storms don't really happen. And so finally, researchers kind of came down to the idea that it still must be a type of sort of weather event, but they couldn't really figure out what. But they did know that while Death Valley is typically known for its extreme heat and lack of precipitation, the area isn't immune to sort of these types of elements. The region has a short rain season and water often collects at the bottom of the valley after rainfall. And so researchers proposed a theory that during colder months after rainfall, when the temperatures would drop below freezing, the water would turn into this really thin sheet of ice. And then as the wind picked up, it could theoretically slowly move even giant boulders in oddly eerily straight directions. And if the wow. wind changed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and if the wind changed directions, the rock would change directions too. So hence those really strange 90 degree shifts in direction. The problem with this theory, while it sounds great and pleasant, was that no one has ever been able to witness it. Now, as soon as you read this, researchers are like, okay, but hold on. Like, this region is huge. It's three miles long and one mile wide. And these rocks move at, like, you know, who knows how how long it takes for them to move. So it's not unplausible that if researchers were to sit there for hours and hours and even days camp out next to one of these giant boulders that they would actually witness this amazing event. 
even if they timed it with this type of rainstorm sleet ice situation happening. So they went to the lab and they actually did sort of like lab conditions where they took a container of Tupperware and filled it with water an inch thick and they had like a bit of the rock sticking out. And under this Tupperware scenario, it turned out to make the rocks move. So they were like, okay, we need to test this out now in Death Valley. (laughs) Totally. That's so weird. Yeah. So they went out there and they would sit out there and nothing happened. So (laughs) they're about to give up. But then finally, in 2013, a group of researchers were like, we need to put technology onto this case. So they put actually motion activated GPS units on top of the rocks and watched the video footage in super high speed. And creepily, the rocks moved. Oh my God. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. And so their theory of this situation where it creates this really thin layer of ice actually happened. And they were able to see these rocks even change direction as the wind moved them. No so, way. Yes, yes, yes. So they write up their stuff and they get it published in PLS One, which is a peer reviewed journal. And everyone is like, the mystery is solved. Here's how it works. And everyone agrees with them. And then there's all these communities online. And they're like, I'm so sad that we've solved this mystery. I always wanted it to be this sort of mysterious, Mm. mysterious thing. So there is one part of this mystery that has yet to be solved, which I think is great for Earth Day because, you know, we like to say that there's still mysteries out there on Earth. It's that these 700-pound boulders. Now, remember, the there's like a whole range of boulders. Some of them are little pebbles. Some of them are medium-sized boulders, if you will. And some of them are these like giant 700-pound suckers. Now, they have witnessed pebbles move and they have witnessed medium-sized boulders move, but they have yet to witness these 700-pound ones move. And so they think that there must be some other type of weather process involved that is moving these 700-pound boulders because they have put the motion detectors on the boulders themselves and none of them moved even when the surrounding rocks moved in under the same type of weather scenarios. The elusive Hmm. chonky rocks. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So that's my fact. And uh, if you even Google sailing stones, you'll be able to see, and I can probably post a couple of images in our online post about this, but it's really eerie, the uh, movements themselves. It really looks like someone just took it and dragged the boulders along and then just sort of left them there. Um, That is so weird. That's like the weirdest thing I've heard in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. The weirdest thing I've learned in a long time is um, our annual special. (laughs) Or it's just a great tagline for our podcast during social distancing times. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) This reminds me so much of the package I edited in our noise issue, our print issue. We still make a magazine sometimes on paper and Aaron Blakemore one of our favorite freelancers wrote about the most mysterious sounds in the world and some of them have been like pretty much solved and some like will never be solved but there's one there are a couple actually that take place 
in deserts, but the singing sand is one that has been pretty much solved. So in like the Gobi Desert, there's like this weird hum that like changes pitch. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like really beautiful and eerie. And uh, some physicists thought that it was probably like the wind blowing sand down dunes and that it was literally just like the friction of the sand rubbing together on its way down the dune. And to prove it, they did an experiment where they like slid down the dunes on their butts to make the sand no. move in the right way. Yeah. And it worked. I love that. They got the dunes to sing with their butts. That's um, amazing. Yeah. But don't worry. Many other sounds remain totally mysterious. Rocks are amazing. <clears throat> yeah, Rocks rock. Like- <laughs> <laughs> they do. All right. Well, we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more facts. Hey guys, it's Jess. Before we get back to the show, I want to take a quick second to tell you about an amazing podcast called Flash Forward. Hosted by award-winning science journalist Rose Eveleff, Flash Forward is a podcast about the possible and totally not possible futures. From the completely absurd to the terrifyingly likely, every episode of Flash Forward takes on a specific future scenario and tries to work through the how, why, when, and if it could ever happen. By combining audio drama with deep reporting, the show helps us figure out what exactly the future might hold. They've tackled questions like, what would the warranty on a sex robot look like? And how hard would it actually be to eliminate all the mosquitoes in the world? And even, could an evil mega company build so many wind turbines that they actually alter the climate? It turns out the answer to that one is technically yes. To understand these futures, Rose talks to science fiction writers, geneticists, farmers, animal behaviorists, historians, space archaeologists, yes, that's a real job, and even her grandma. People have described it as Radiolab meets Black Mirror, but with jokes. If you've ever wondered what the future might really be like, Flash Forward is the show for you. You can listen to Flash Forward on any podcasting app or go to flashforwardpod.com to learn more. Okay, we're back. And uh, Jess, tell me about some lizards. I Not will. Lizards. lizards are herbs. Lizards? My, okay. my story focuses more on salamanders. Okay. But regardless, yes, I'm going to talk about my love of herpetology. So basically where this all begins is back in the day, during the summer between my junior and senior years of college, I did this really, really weird But it was educational, but it was weird um, (laughs) field course in herpetology. And obviously, you guys know, but herpetology is the study of reptiles and amphibians. I was Um, actually going to ask that. I was like, wow, everyone knows what this is, but I need to ask. No, Um, no worries. Yeah, yeah. it encompasses both of those groups. And the name comes from the word herpes, which comes from the Greek word for creeping thing or to creep. Uh, kind of like a serpent might creep. And I will get back to my weird herpetology class in a minute, but I first want to take a quick detour to talk about the history of herpetology, which is really fun. So basically, people have been formally studying herpetology for a couple hundred years, but we've 
honestly just always been fascinated by amphibians. So the first thing is there's always been this kind of historical theme where witches have a thing for newts. And <laughs> sure, of course. Yeah. And that like dates back to Shakespeare's Macbeth, which was first performed in 1606. And in the very first scene of Macbeth, there are the witches and they're making their brew and they say, quote, in the cauldron, boil and bake, eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog. And so that was beautiful. Thank you. Dramatic reading. And so it might seem like they're making some like grotesque stew of animal bits, but those terms are actually names for herbs and plants. What? Yeah, totally. They're all like a pseudonym for some other thing. Like eye of newt is actually a mustard seed. Oh, yeah, which I did not know until I started researching this. But nevertheless, witches still like had that connotation to be associated with newts, regardless that it was just a mustard seed. Another example of historical herpetology is back in ancient Egypt, people worshipped the frog as a symbol of fertility. And I think that makes sense because as amphibians, the frogs lived near rivers like the Nile, and the Nile itself was very much like a life source for Egyptians. So I think that makes yeah. sense. There were actually ceremonies where the pharaoh would like ejaculate into the Nile to like Oh my god, really? No yeah, way. To, well cuz and like the the pharaoh was akin to a deity and there was this idea that the Nile uh was the giver of life. So I guess I haven't done too much research into this. I just know that there were ceremonies involving the pharaoh masturbating into the river but i would assume it was something about like replenishing the nile's life-giving properties um or maybe not maybe it was just a weird sex thing whatever but like it happened either way it sounds like it belongs in handmaid's tale or something <laughs> yeah it totally does so yeah so also frogs are in the bible um where like swarms of frogs are seen as punishment there's also another weird thing about salamanders. Um, people thought that salamanders had this supernatural ability to withstand fire and heat. And it seems like people thought this because when they would set a log on fire, salamanders would often like scurry out of the log. So people thought that the salamanders were born from the fire. But when that in was fact, they were like, please get me away from the fire. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because like old rotting logs are the habitat of choice for many salamanders. But Still, you know, for that reason and many other reasons, like their toxicity and their limb regeneration, salamanders were just very well respected and even sure. worshipped. Yeah. And there are a lot more examples of, like, historical herps. I'll give one more because it's my favorite. So we all know the story of the frog prince, where the princess kisses a frog and he turns into a prince and then they live happily ever after. Yeah, that's um, literally what I've been thinking about this whole time. So, okay, yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> My favorite iteration of that story is the fantastic animated version that Disney did back in 2009, which was set in New Orleans. It's excellent. But the original version was recorded by the Brothers Grimm back in the early 1800s. And in that version, there was no kissing of frogs. But instead, the spell was broken when the princess throws him against the wall. Oh, and then he falls down onto the bed and transforms into a prince. <laughs> <laughs> he just needed a, a solid slap upside the head. A jolt. Totally. Yeah. I just thought that was so funny. Like, no, no, no. Not a kiss. I'm going <laughs> to throw you against the wall. <laughs> well, and we've talked before on we were just saying about 
the Brothers Grimm and how their stories, like, compared to the Disney version, sound so dark. But they actually, they, like, whitewashed the existing folklore. Like, the, right. in, in collecting yeah, them yeah. and putting them into their book, they had to, like, make them more family-friendly. So I wonder what she did to the frog in, like, the, like, version of that story that got told in, like, dark northern totally. German villages in the middle yeah. of the woods. Yeah. Like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I It's really gone through some transformation. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of weird stories like that. But today, thankfully, our knowledge of amphibians is much more rooted in science. So I'm going to tell you about some of my favorite amphibians. So first, there are these things called Sicilians. Do you guys know what these are? Have you heard of them? I've heard I of am Sicilian. a Sicilian. <laughs> Not the Italian <laughs> kind. <laughs> so it's spelled C-A-E-C-I-L-I-A-N-S. And they're amphibious worms. Ooh, Ooh. I did not know that was a thing. Yeah, nobody what? does. I okay. learned about this. How, Go ahead. Uh, hmm. Question. How yes. is an amphibious worm different from a snake? I mean, snakes are reptiles, not amphibians. But I feel like once you're talking about amphibious worms, you're getting very close to a snake. Totally. Yes. They have actually, so they like have evolved convergently, which means they came from two separate lineages and just like developed very similar traits, essentially. So, so anyway, so Sicilians, they're amphibious worms and they're not like earthworms. They are actual vertebrates. And while some do have lungs, they also breathe through their skin and like a, like a traditional amphibian often does. I'm picturing like the basilisk right now. Yes, they look very similar to that. Mm -hmm. And also the other thing in pop culture that are similar to Sicilians is that a lot of people think the worm in Star Wars was based on a Sicilian. Oh. But yeah, so they don't have eyes and they do have a tentacle that comes out of their face. Oh, cute. (laughs) Yeah. And they use that as like a secondary olfactory sense. Like they kind of use it to sniff out where they're going. I truly wish I had that. (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I mean... I don't really want a tentacle coming out of my face. Well, I don't know. I guess it depends on my mood. The more you think about it. But my all-time favorite Sicilian fact is that in some species, the babies are born with these pointy little teeth shaped like shovels. And because food can be pretty scarce when they're born, the babies use their little shovel teeth to eat the skin off of their mother's body. Oh, (laughs) cute. But is it like, is it like extra skin or like skin she needs? So, okay. It's extra skin. Oh, so almost like breast milk. Like she's making the skin for her babies. Yes. That's almost essentially the, exactly the same thing. So basically wow. they peel off her mother's skin and eat it. It's very rich in fatty acids, making it extra nutritious. <laughs> and Great. basically super the food. Yeah, it's a superfood. Um, and the babies have this like feeding frenzy for around seven minutes. And then that's how long it takes them to eat the skin. And the mom is just like super chill about this. She just like lets them go to town. And then in a day or so, like a day and a half, maybe the mom grows another layer of skin. And then they eat that layer. Like She's just so exfoliated. Yeah. Great, great <laughs> self-care for a new mom. Totally. Totally. <laughs> so, yeah. And once those babies grow up, they lose their shovely teeth and get more cone-shaped teeth. Um, and they're actually pretty voracious predators. And they eat everything from earthworms to insects to even fish and other amphibians. 
So, yeah, those are Sicilians. And then my other favorite amphibians are the giant salamanders. Do you, have, do you guys know about giant salamanders? Only that they're giant salamanders. Same. That's, that's really totally. the end of my knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, large. I will say that that's definitely their most exciting trait is their sheer <laughs> size. <laughs> so there's three main groups of giant salamander. There's the Chinese giant salamander, the Japanese giant salamander, and then the hellbender, which is like the North American version. But the first two get up to five or six feet in length, and they're essentially like human-sized. Um, they're like actually huge. That's and they kind crazy. of... Yeah. yeah, it's wild. And they lurk on the bottoms of rivers and they kind of just suck fish up, like suck them up like vacuums. And they do that by like expanding their throats and then they open their mouths and it creates a literal vacuum underwater and the fish just can't escape. And when they're threatened, they produce this like milky fluid and it smells like pepper. I don't know why that <laughs> repels things, but I just thought it was cute. <laughs> Spicy. Spicy indeed. I guess it's like pepper spray kind of. Mm. Sadly, both the Chinese and Japanese giant salamanders are critically endangered because a lot of times they're hunted for their meat, which is really sad. And then there is the last one, which is the hellbender. And the hellbender is the only giant salamander that lives in North America. And I think the name makes it sound a little bit too sexy for what it actually is. (laughs) Basically, it's just like a foot and a half long big salamander. But one theory for the name is that the hellbender was named by settlers who thought it was a creature from hell where it is bent on returning. And another rendition says the animal's weird skin reminded people of, quote, horrible tortures of the infernal regions. Um, but oh, it's God. Just a, yeah, it's just a cute little salamander. I mean, it's bigger than normal, but it's just a salamander. And more cutesy colloquial terms for them include the snot otter, the lasagna lizard. <laughs> the lasagna <laughs> the, the snot otter and lasagna lizard, I feel like, are both nicknames I could adopt for myself. Totally. Those totally. Also sit on, like, appetizers at a really fancy, like, farm-to-table restaurant. <laughs> yeah yeah some people also call it grampus and i have no idea why like like krampus the scary christmas demon but yeah exactly Mm. i i have no idea so yeah so basically like i said the hellbender isn't as big as the other two giant salamanders but they are also endangered mostly from habitat loss and global warming because they need cold waters because they have higher oxygen content And so they live in the fast-moving rivers of the Ozarks and also in states like Ohio, Illinois, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. And they are the state amphibian of Pennsylvania. And that brings me back to my field course in herpetology, which was in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I was looking forward to when that was was coming back to the story. So I will end on my experience of my field course. So basically when I took this class, we were supposed to go find hellbenders because they are, you know, very prevalent in Pennsylvania, but it was too dangerous because we had just like a crazy amount of rain that summer. So it would have been too dangerous to go herping for hellbenders in those fast moving streams. But we did spend a lot of weeks just trudging through the forest, looking for vernal pools, which are just these little ponds that are only around in the spring. 
and salamanders lay their egg masses in those pools because fish don't live in them to eat the eggs. But it's also just like stagnant water. So it just meant a ton of mosquitoes were around. And then there was all the mud and the poison ivy. So I just (laughs) spent a lot of July in like long pants and rain boots and a windbreaker just zipped all the way up with the hood up for protection. And it was obviously like so cool. And like I felt very privileged to go out like hunt for salamanders and like learn all about them. But it also just made me realize, like, scientific fieldwork was not my jam. <laughs> um, but I'm glad I had the experience to, like, you know, it made me respect the Earth and, like, all these ecosystems that a lot of people don't always see. Um, you know, like, you could just go out there and flip over a log and find a bunch of little bright red newts. Like, it's so cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to talk about amphibians and salamanders and stuff for the Earth Day episode, because they're just like so sensitive and cute. And they're (laughs) bioindicators, meaning that like, you know, if they start to die off, it's a sign that something's going wrong in the ecosystem, like pollution or global warming or whatever. They're just like very in sync with the Earth. So we got to protect them. And that's my Earth Day message. That's a great Earth Day message. Thank you for all of those facts. Also, I have to say... I knew that the Greek word herpes meant to crawl. It never occurred to me. I knew that because of the origin of the name for the virus herpes, it never occurred to me that like that is also where the root for herpetology comes from, even though that is extremely obvious now that I think of it. Yeah, Um, I never realized it either until (laughs) I like actually looked it up and I was like, oh my God, that's so weird. Yeah. Wow. Well. Two things that crawl, herpes (laughs) and herps. Love it. (laughs) Well, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact. And we're back and I'm going to talk about a mushroom that takes up mushroom, as it were. Oh, boy. Uh (laughs) Sorry. So when you think about the biggest organisms on the planet, I mean, you might think of like a blue whale, for example, quite large, largest uh, actual animal living today. But arguably, the largest organism is actually a mushroom, not a single mushroom in the sense that it's like a giant toadstool. And I'll get into the physiology of mushrooms a little bit more during the course of this fact. But in both Oregon and Michigan, there are these giant, giant fungal mats, which is a term that sounds kind of gross, but (laughs) it's really wonderful and fascinating and beautiful. So there's this species of mushroom called Armillaria uh, estoyae. They're often called honey mushrooms. And honey mushroom is a, a name given to like a whole group of them. Most armillarias people would call honey mushrooms. But this particular species is really, really good at just covering huge, huge tracts of land. And it has a really kind of insidious way of doing this. So they look like pretty innocuous mushrooms. They're named because they have these kind of like golden brown fruiting bodies. And they they grow out of trees. You'll often see them sprouting up out of dead trees. I used to, uh, when I was in college and I studied mycology and we would have like during our fieldwork days, we would just kind of run around the woods in eastern Massachusetts and 
my mycology professor used to tell me that like every mycologist has like a particular kind of mushroom that they can just always find. And mine was the honey mushroom. I just like was really good at finding them in dead trees and bringing back a bunch of them to take spore prints of and all the other things you do when you're a mycology nerd. But the thing about them is that while there are a lot of species of fungi that have what we call uh, mycorrhizal uh, relationships with plants or trees, which means they, you know, grow kind of into or on or around these other species and kind of use the plants for nutrients. A lot of those relationships are really symbiotic. And in fact, fungi really help bring a lot of nutrients to soil by breaking down materials like bugs, dead leaves, whatever, to, uh, you know, release those, those nutrients back. But in the case of this particular kind of honey mushroom, they have this really nasty way of getting in a tree's business. <laughs> so <laughs> so mushrooms, even though we often interact with just their fruiting bodies, that's actually just like a really small part of most mushrooms' lifespans. Most fungi are mostly existing underground and uh, through networks of this stuff called mycelium. And mycelium, when you see it uh, under the ground or like growing in some kind of substrate, it just kind of looks like this kind of like flossy, white, almost like gossamer material. It's just like this very, these like wispy little little bits of white material. Uh, but actually the whole mushroom is made of mycelium. It's just that it grows into these fruiting bodies and it, it has chitin in it, which is the same uh, material that makes beetles hard. So like, you know, the, the mushroom is able to form all these different shapes and have wonderful colors and stuff. But if you cut into a mushroom, you know, if you think of like a white button mushroom that you're cutting into and how the the middle like stalk of it is that like white fleshy material that's just like a bunch of mycelium packed up together but when you look at this kind of honey mushroom in particular they don't just have mycelium they have these kind of appendages called rhizomorphs uh, or shoestrings. And these are like thicker, they're stronger. Sometimes they're actually like black in color. And it's basically, I think some researchers say that it's basically like as if the stalk of the mushroom, like this very like thick clump of, of mycelium with the kind of like chitinous protection is growing underground. And when you have these really thick, rhizomorphs, they act more like roots. And so they're able to grow really far. And they're also able to like really mess trees up when they grow into them. So these rhizomorphs will kind of grow into a root system and leach some nutrients from a tree. And then once the tree is weakened enough, they'll just like kind of shoot into the tree and like really kill it off. And so as much as I loved uh, hunting for honey mushrooms, I have to say they are actually uh, quite devastating to trees. So that brings us back to what's going on in Oregon and Michigan. So you have these super thick root-like branches of mycelium. They are like hunting around for new places to mess trees up. And the result is a single fungus 
weighing some 22,000 pounds. What? 22,000 yeah. pounds? <laughs> yes. We have a couple of really large ones in the U.S. In Michigan, we think that it's probably like thousands of years old. But then in Oregon, they found one that they think is at least 8,000 years old. And that covers 3.5 square miles. And it might weigh 35,000 tons. What? Yes. In Michigan, we're talking about like 91 acres across. So still like quite large. But yeah, so like we know that this is all one mushroom. Like we can sequence its genes and say like this is all one organism. And we can't like obviously we can't like make the ground transparent and look at the whole thing. But and of course, uh, lots of scientists wish they could. But when you calculate how much mycelium there must be and estimate the weight, you know, you're talking about something that is just like so, so massive. And yeah, there's been some research into like how these mushrooms are, are able to get so old and so big. And there there was a study on, they, they call it the humongous fungus in Michigan. Um, Cute. Yeah. Fun. And they found that it had like a really slow rate of mutation as it like reproduced and grew its network. They think it, it may be that because it's underground and like the rays of the sun aren't like inflicting cellular damage and encouraging mutations that like that might have something to do with just like how it's able to grow so huge because it's obviously a slow process um but yeah it's i love that like the the biggest thing on the planet is just a mushroom mat yeah that's pretty wild to think about like it's spanning like that much space is weird that's crazy yeah yeah, well, and it's just, you know, the you have these little fruiting bodies that only come out for part of the year, right? And, like, I'm sure if you were in the area around the humongous fungus, uh, you would be like, wow, there are so many of these mushrooms. But still, like, if you collected them all, it certainly would not weigh much. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. You, you might get a nice a nice couple of baskets feed some hungry people. But the sheer mass when you calculate all of its underground goings on is incredible. And yeah, it's a great reminder of how much of like the wonderful things on earth are happening hidden from our view. Yeah, big time. Is it like helping the environment around it or is it just No, bad? Yeah. they're bad for trees. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's it's like they're um they're like they're not like invasive. It's kind of like all like part of a healthy breakfast, you know, like um <laughs> this is all like a normal thing for a forest, but You do want to like keep an eye on how many trees they're killing because it can be a problem. Um, And sometimes they they do need to 
intervene. You might clear an infected tree and they'll also, they can like remain pathogenic in fallen trees or tree trunks for quite a long time. So you do have to really like burn or or totally get rid of the tree if you're trying to keep it from spreading. They're also like trees that it's less pathogenic too. So you might like plant some more resistant species. But yeah, also it's like, you know, the the mushrooms deserve to live too. So <laughs> Right. Save the humongous fungus. That's what I say. Mm. Um there's also, do you guys know uh this is not about mushrooms, but do you guys know about pando? Uh-uh. No. So Pando is another extremely large organism. And in fact, by area, I think it's considered the largest living organism. Sorry. No, it's the heaviest known organism. Mm. Um, But it's a single male quaking aspen that has formed a colony of clones that occupies 106 acres. So (laughs) I'm quaking. Wow. This guy, he's so perfect. Yeah. <laughs> the world needs more Pando. That's what he said, that Aspen tree. So wait, why is he named Pando? It's Latin for like, I spread out. Oh, like got it. Endemic. Mm, oh, yeah. Claire. <laughs> wow. A genius. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I did not make the connection. So yes, truly. But Yeah, the panda's root system, I think conservative estimates put it at about 80,000 years old. Um, So it's also one of the oldest known living organisms. Uh, But some people argue that it could be like a million years old. Um, That's, I cannot even like process that. Yeah, it's wild. Um, And again, like back in 1968, when Burton V. Barnes discovered pando, he he was even pretty sure it was a single organism just based on its morphology. I guess he he was just like, look, I know trees and these are all the same tree. But then once they actually were able to study it, you know, at the more molecular level, it was indeed, you know, at least supported that this is all one tree. So yeah, it's just like a root system that keeps sprouting up new trees. Very, like, you know, if you think about it, pretty similar to the humongous fungus in terms of just, like, how it operates. So, like, each – if you took the average age of just the stems that are currently standing, they're just over 100 years old, but the roots are much older. So, yeah, that's another just, like, really incredible one. Also, Pando is not doing well. Um, Oh, no. Yeah. My boy. (laughs) 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 Yeah, unfortunately – there was a 2018 study that found that Pando hadn't been growing new trees, I guess, for, for the last few decades. And, like, a lot of people think that humans allowing cattle and deer to, like, thrive nearby and graze meant that fewer saplings were surviving. Also, like, Pando thrived really well in, like, a system of uh, natural forest fires. So... This is in Utah, by the way. I don't think I said where Pando hails from. But so it's basically because this like intricate root system is surviving underground. It's surviving wildfires and then sprouting up uh, afterwards. And like 
that has kept other plants from colonizing the area. And so, you know, now that we like manage forest fires, which is good because otherwise we would cause a bunch of them. But like this is a this is a plant that really thrived in pre-human days and is is not doing as well with our interference uh, in in various ways. So yeah, hopefully uh, Pando makes it because he's had a long life and it would be a bummer if we (laughs) did him in uh, so soon after uh, discovering him. But yeah. Yeah, imagine all the life that Pando and the humongous fungus (laughs) have seen. Oh my gosh. All the centuries of humans. Pando and the humongous fungus is the children's book I'm going to write. Yes. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, I love it. That's all I have to say about that big mushroom sh- mushrooms and uh pando. So well, I love I love this week's episode. <laughs> yeah, it was really big. fun. Yeah. What yeah. was the weirdest thing we learned this week? Mm, I don't know. They were all good. I think the rock mystery is yeah. still really is- weighing heavy on my mind (laughs) oh no but yes agreed same (laughs) the weirdest thing i learned this week is a popular science podcast we're available on all major podcast platforms so subscribe wherever you're listening now and if you like what you hear please rate and review us on apple podcasts it helps other weirdos find the show for more information on the stories you heard in this episode come find us at popsi.com slash weird you can buy our merch including weirdest thing t-shirts tote bags and mugs at popsi.threadless.com the show is produced by all of our hosts including me rachel feltman with editing and audio engineering by jess Bodie. our theme music is by billy cadden if you have questions suggestions or weird stories to share tweet us at weirdest underscore thing thanks for listening weirdos Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.